Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and Aragog. Today we will be discussing what Lockhart isn't telling us, what Hagrid's monster knows, and what the Fort Anglia can tell us about the power of magical objects. So, Madeline, Ron's worst nightmare, as revealed in this chapter, is a forest full of giant spiders. So, your worst nightmare would be a blank full of giant what? Okay, so I think that I don't know if this would be my absolute worst nightmare, but I'm very scared of deep ocean. So I'm thinking that it would be like the deep ocean full of giant blue whales because I'm very scared of the deep ocean and also very large things in them. That would freak me out. But blue whales are so gentle. I know, but they're so large and that freaks me out. (laughs) Okay. What about you? Um, my worst nightmare, I hate mosquitoes and most insects. Mm -hmm. That's why I love spiders, because they kill insects. Um, my worst nightmare would be a dark room full of giant mosquitoes where I can't see them and they're just like attacking me and swarming me all the time. Yeah, that does sound pretty awful. That sounds worse than my thing. That would be the worst. So when this chapter begins, everyone is on edge at Hogwarts. Dumbledore and Hagrid are gone. No one is allowed into the hospital wings to see Hermione or any of the victims. And Malfoy is talking openly in class about hoping a student dies. So Harry and Ron are desperately trying to find answers to these clues that they've been left. Yeah, but as we're going to see, they don't um, really try super hard at first because it feels like everything is so like forlorn and there's no hope. Um, but one day in Herbology, after having reconciled with Ernie McMillan... Harry notices a line of spiders walking out of the greenhouse directly toward the Forbidden Forest. In Defense Against the Dark Arts, Lockhart seems extremely cheerful and assures the class that there is nothing to worry about because the culprit, Hagrid, has been caught. And his words galvanize Harry and Ron into deciding, let's do it tonight, let's go into the forest and try to find the spiders. So that night they decide they're going to use the invisibility cloak to sneak out of the castle, get Fang from Hagrid's hut, and walk into the forest using wand light pointed at the ground to follow the spiders. There is a really cool scene where they panic because they hear something large moving around that they can't see. Um, But then they're shocked and relieved to find that it is Mr. Weasley's old Fort Anglia, um, which has become wild running around the Forbidden Forest all on its own. So they're so distracted by this car um, that they don't notice they're suddenly surrounded and scooped up by giant hairy spiders who carry them deep into the forest where it seems that hundreds of these giant spiders live. Their captors alert an old blind spider named Aragog of their presence. And when Aragog asks if Hagrid is there, like meaning like, is it Hagrid who's come? Um, Harry explains quickly that they're friends of Hagrid and that Hagrid has been sent to Azkaban. So Aragog reveals to Harry and Ron that he's not the monster in the chamber, but was given to Hagrid as an egg, and Hagrid took care of him, hiding him in the castle, which is what we saw in the memory. Um, He also reveals that the monster in the chamber is so terrible that the giant spiders don't even speak its name. It becomes clear that Aragog uh, is willing to let his children eat them, 
Um, and Harry, Ron, and Fang are saved just in the nick of time by the Ford Anglia, again, driving up and uh, carrying them off, um, self-driving uh, through the forest, which it apparently knows really well. So when they're finally all home safe, they're so traumatized and confused, and they realize that all they learned from that was that Hagrid definitely did not open the chamber last time. Um, as they're about to fall asleep, Harry remembers that Aragog said he had been accused of killing a girl who died in a bathroom, and then wonders out loud to Ron if Moaning Myrtle is that girl. So this chapter, as we'll note um, from reading the synopsis, is not really um, super interesting in the sense that there's not a ton of connections to other chapters, other parts of the series like we usually like to discuss in this show, but we do have a lot in terms of the actual plot development because it is very focused on moving the plot forward. And we do have some stuff about J.K. Rowling's writing style as well. Um, but starting off, we notice basically that um, after Hermione was attacked, most of the students in the school now seem to have accepted that Harry is not the heir of Slytherin um, because he would never attack Hermione. Um, so what do we think about this? Like, what does this um, say about the, the, the feelings in the school right now? And, and how does Harry feel about it? Do you- well, one thing that's interesting about that is that I didn't think before is that, okay, so of course Harry would never attack Hermione, but also then Harry would never attack other Muggleborns. You know, it doesn't really make right, any right. sense that Harry would be the heir of Slytherin if, you know, if they believe that he's genuinely friends with Hermione, um, which he is. But if that's what the school believes, why would they then believe that he could attack other Muggleborns? So kind of, do- if you really think about it, it doesn't make too much sense, but I guess that this is just a confirmation of, okay, like we really, we were suspecting Harry because of all these like coincidence and kind of circumstantial evidence, but now we see that this is Hermione, this is his best friend, and he would never hurt her, so it's kind of a confirmation. Mm-hmm. And then we have a point where, you know, Lockhart's giving this speech in class, basically expounding upon this idea that, you know, the ministry has apprehended the heir and they would never cart off an innocent person. So obviously, like, you know, the minister of magic knows what he's doing and all this stuff. It's really strange. And especially from Harry and Ron's perspective, because we just saw the scene where Fudge, you know, quote unquote, apprehends Hagrid. Mm-hmm. Um, and And it really seems like, you know, from their perspective, Lockhart has no idea what he's talking about, but also, like, why is he so confident in the ministry? Um, and and you had an interesting point, which was, like, maybe readers will start to suspect Lockhart is the heir, um, which is an interesting, like, red herring, because he's been so weird and sketchy this whole time, and now he's, like, presenting it as, like, a oh, it's totally over, like, I'm certain. And that's very similar to what Tom Riddle did, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, even though we don't yet know that Tom Riddle was the culprit, but it's, like... You know, he apprehended a suspect and then the attack stopped. So he was like, yay, everybody, it's over. Yeah, it's really, it's strange kind of on a lot of levels. I guess first talking about, like, the idea that he could be um, being presented as a red herring or reading it for the first time. I think that when I reread this chapter, I was thinking, well, he's acting so strangely and he always acts strangely, but he's so overly confident. And then that paired with all of his past weirdness and kind of blind like stupidity and optimism Mm -hmm. it's like maybe this is kind of an act and or like kind of a quarrel situation yeah like that's what i was thinking too when Um, you started saying that 
because, you know, Quirrell was pretending to be dumb and stuttering and all this stuff so people wouldn't suspect him of having more sinister purposes. And I think that maybe Lockhart is kind of, could be, could be thought of as doing that as well. It's like, he's like, oh, whoops, accidentally I mm-hmm. did this. But he's also kind of accidentally hurting people a lot. Like, he hurts Harry. He, like, messes up the duel. Like, all this stuff that happens with his... um failed magic where he's so overly confident one could think oh maybe he's just intentionally making these mistakes so that people don't think that he is capable of this and then inadvertently hurting people i don't know yeah if that were the case though it might start to feel like oh jk rowling only has this one gimmick which is like of the course, defense against yeah. the dark arts teacher that appears bumbling but is actually the mastermind so i'm glad he's not the heir um uh, but, you know, I think it is a good red herring and it, it, it just is a really strange affect in this scene where he's insistent that everything's fine now. Everything's though, okay, like, yeah. Everything at the school is terrible. Spirits are super low. Like, they have to be escorted from class to class by professors and, like, you know, everyone is really worried that, like, next thing that happens, the school is going to close and Lockhart's like, everything's fine. So, Don't yeah, so it. knowing that knowing that he's not the heir and this isn't a whole ruse, like, what do we think Lockhart is actually thinking here? Like, what is, why is he acting this way? I think it just has to do with his bravado and his blind faith in the system working correctly. We don't really have a sense of like how he feels about government, for example, but he really loves awards. He -hmm. loves the awards that he's gotten. So maybe he has faith in the ministry to like, you know, be more effective, essentially, Mm -hmm. and not just like cart off an innocent person because they want to be seen doing something, which is what we saw happen. Right. Um, But I I can't think of another reason why, except that that sort of like unfettered optimism and overconfidence is just like a quality that he always has. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. And he probably is scared, too, and just wants things to be over. Yeah, I'm sure part of it is that he would just really like to believe that it's all over, and this is an easy way for him to believe that. It's just like, oh, well, they apprehended someone, and the ministry took them to Azkaban, so that's it. So before we get into the content of their meeting with Aragog, one thing I noticed is that this chapter is, I think, more nightmare-like than any other so far, Mm -hmm. um, because... You know, not only is it going into the forest at night, scary spiders, you know, giant things like that happen in dreams where it doesn't seem real. Um, Especially to me, the car magically appearing and driving itself around was something that comes up because, I mean, that's something that happens in a lot of dreams I've had where either a car is seen driving itself or I'm in a car and I realize no one's driving, you know, (laughs) something like that. And I don't know if everybody has those dreams, but I think that's part of it is sometimes you have dreams where the car is out of control in that way yeah i definitely think it this whole chapter seems very like nightmarish um and a lot of that is down to the writing i think there are these long passages where all jk rowling does is describe how dark the path is and how it's just lit by harry's wand because ron's is broken and he doesn't want to light it and and fang is spooked and mm-hmm. the forest is getting denser and denser and the trail is getting slimmer and slimmer and the spiders you know they're so dark that they have to keep like squatting down on the ground and pointing the wand directly at the earth just to see the spiders trailing off um and then they they go off the path entirely and they're just like blundering around in the dark through the brush and it is very creepy and it is like nightmarish i i feel like if i were harry and especially if i were ron you know i might wake up tomorrow and just be like 
was that just like a horrible dream? Yeah, like, I hope it. Crazy. I hope it was. <laughs> and then yeah, like with the whole flying car arriving at just the right moment, um, it is it is very dreamlike, and it's it's a really clever way of writing scenes that are scary to make them feel like they're not quite real. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, you know, the audience we have to remember is children, so you don't want to make it too scary for them. There has to be some levity or or um, something to make the situation a little bit lighter for the reader. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, another element of that is that they are sneaking out in the invisibility cloak. That's another thing that, you know, maybe in a dream you're invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, Although they're not wearing it in the forest. They're, they're not wearing it in the forest. So they take it off, but then they put it back on. And then kind of that whole idea of the car, even though it's kind of scary the way it's acting, it rushes them home. It, you know, everyone kind of whimpers along home, including <laughs> Fang yeah. and... They're all just like tucked into bed at the end. And even though it's still scary, you get that sense of like, okay, that was the nighttime and in the morning, maybe it'll be okay. Even Mm -hmm. though it's, you know, it's not okay, but it it does have that type of quality of like the spiders aren't following us. Right. You know, into the real world. Yeah. It it does feel self-contained in that way because it's like the spiders have their enclave and they're not going to leave because they're so terrified of this creature, whatever it is. Yeah. And that's a nice segue. So let's go over what we actually learn from this meeting with Aragog. Clearly, Hagrid thought that they would get a lot of information out of him. Right. Um, and that Aragog wouldn't have his kids try to eat them, but that's another thing. So what do we actually learn about the situation with the Chamber of Secrets, first of all? Right. So what we learn is that, you know, Aragog says he's not the monster. Mm-hmm. So we learn that and... That it was just kind of a coincidence, a very Hagrid-like coincidence that somebody would give him an egg. And also, is that ever explained? No, (laughs) I don't think it ever is. That's like crazy. Why is everyone giving him eggs all the time? I think he's actively seeking them out partially, but but yeah, it is weird. Anyway, so he gets an egg and then, you know, raises it, hides it in like a closet at school. Um, And then he is spotted by riddle right mm-hmm. prior prior to the meeting we saw in the memory he's spotted by riddle and then or riddle is somehow aware he's somehow this. aware that he's there and um maybe other people are though i don't know but he starts to be like accused of um the attacks that start happening mm-hmm. and then he is accused of killing the girl that we know at the end of this chapter is moaning myrtle so yeah and this is riddle making the accusations yeah this is riddle making the accusations um when Riddle, of course, knows who the real monster is. So basically all that we get from Aragog is, he, yes, Hagrid did take care of him. He was accused and um, it wasn't him. And also we know that, like you just mentioned, the um, Acromantula, which are the giant spiders, are so mm-hmm. afraid of whatever the monster is in the chamber that they won't even speak its name like Voldemort. Like yeah, Harry, Harry, Harry compares it to like a, you know, monster Voldemort. Yeah. <laughs> even other monsters won't speak of its won't name. Won't speak of it. So we know that something, it has some terrifying power that even these giant scary spiders who mm-hmm. can, you know, eat you in a bite and be gross, <laughs> that that is something that they're going to be terrified of, which we know is because of their eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're starting to get closer and closer to that truth. Um, just another clue about the spider—you know—the spiders being terrified of this monster is that spiders have eight eyes. Right. So 
a spider is even more susceptible to this power than most other creatures are. So maybe that is why the spiders, the regular size spiders, are mm-hmm. going out into the forest. Yeah, I mean, it seems escape. like they're they're basically trying to get sanctuary with Aragog's tribe mm-hmm. somehow. Like all the all the spiders in the surrounding countryside are congregating there for protection or something. So Hagrid knows this, and we do learn that Hagrid has been, you know, continually visiting Aragog throughout Aragog's life, and mm-hmm. that, you know, they don't eat him, and they're friends, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think about Hagrid, and do, what is, you know, do you, we think that he's naive in believing that Aragog won't eat them? Do you think he, you know, what do you think he thinks about this whole situation? I mean, that's Hagrid's nature, right? Yeah. He always underestimates how dangerous monsters are. Yeah. Um, because they're friendly to him because he raises them. Right. So, you know, it's like a mama zookeeper raising a tiger cub. Like, mm-hmm. the tiger cub's going to love her, but any other humans that get near it, it's not going to be so friendly. Right. Um, and it's the same thing with Hagrid, so... His only experience with Aragog is like, Aragog loves me, we're friends, he would never try to eat me. So it's inconceivable to Hagrid that Aragog would try to eat Hagrid's friends, sent in his name. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do, because he doesn't understand them. They love eating people, and mm-hmm. if humans just wander into their camp, they're going to eat them. Right. And everyone else was, the only reason why they don't eat Hagrid is because Aragog's their leader, and... Mm-hmm. You know, it's really difficult for them to not eat Hagrid. Yeah, and as we're going to see, and this is the one connection that we can sort of draw to other books. Yeah. Um, when Aragog dies in Half-Blood Prince, um, Hagrid goes to the Acromantula camp to retrieve Aragog's body, and they try to eat him. Right. So it really was just like, it was only Aragog and the Aragog-Hagrid connection that was keeping him safe. Yes. Even Hagrid, you know, so he's like... He's, like, kind of freaked out by that. He's like, they even attacked me. Yeah. You know? And I thought, like, I was special. And Harry and Ron are like, yeah, of course they did. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) So, right, we can see that from what you just said in the sixth book, you know, Hagrid doesn't even change after hearing the story from Harry and Ron. Um, He's also definitely not changed that much in the 50 years or whatever since... um, the chamber was opened because, you know, he is still caring for creatures like Norbert mm-hmm. and all these other creatures to come. So his character is just very loving and endearing, but also dangerous. And I think this is kind of another interesting aspect to why he is in prison. He is someone who is kind of like advocating for and identifying himself with creatures that can be dangerous. Yeah. And um, that makes him more vulnerable to being imprisoned himself. Um, even if he is not doing the attacking and even if his creatures aren't, it's kind of like, well, if you associate yourself with that type of creature, you're going to be um, imprisoned. And that kind of is just another um, element of how everything is very unfair in this. Yeah. And it's not just the threat of imprisonment. It's the how does society view you thing. Yes, like, exactly. Not just the Ministry of Magic in an official government capacity, but like the average wizard views Hagrid as like a sort of like, you know, well-meaning savage, essentially, yeah. because he is half giant. And also because he associates himself with these very savage creatures. Right. Um, so he yeah, he is like, you know, kind, gentle one of the most loving pr- people in the entire series, but the average wizard on the street 
is sort of afraid of him, be scared of him because yeah. of his association with things like man-eating spiders and blast-ended scroots, which aren't even like a real thing. And Hagrid maybe <laughs> bred them himself. Yeah. And like dragons. Yeah. And all these monsters that, you know, wouldn't think twice about snapping you up and eating you. Right. Um, and, and he thinks they're lovable pets. And he so does. It's, it's scary. Partly because he knows. And we see that with his brother, with Grop later on. Mm-hmm. I mean, he knows that he is someone who people think um, is dangerous because of his half-giant status, and he knows that he's not dangerous. It's a safe type of thing. He's trying to give the benefit of the doubt to these creatures that people assume are dangerous, but most of the time they really are dangerous, and that's difficult. His, his, I think, big problem is that he assumes everything else that society labels dangerous is as loving and kind-hearted as he is, Mm -hmm. which they're not. No. So now to the other type kind of creature, but really it's a magical object in this uh-huh. chapter, is the flying and now driving Fort Anglia. Um, so Rowling sets up a really fun um, payoff, which is also kind of dreamlike, in um, which Harry, Ron, and Fang escape from Aragog unscathed with the Fort Anglia. And we think that the payoff has come from the beginning of the book when they fly in on the car to mm-hmm. now, oh my god, we basically forgot about this car and it's still here and it's just chilling and become wild by the forest. Um, you mean that scene where they encounter what they think is a dangerous creature, but it's actually the car? Yes, exactly. That scene. So that's what they, when they first discover it, it's like, oh my god, we all, we forgot about the car. Here it is. And then before we can even adjust to what's happening with the car, the spiders are there. Uh-huh. So then we again forget forget about the car, we're terrified, that's a weird thing, and then the car pulls up at exactly the right time so they can all jump in and escape. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, knows how to drive them back and mm-hmm. really is clearly, you know, a smart creature and very powerful. So, I mean, what do we think about, first of all, about Rowling's kind of use of writing in this chapter with the car? I think the way she writes it is really deft and I really like that they have two payoffs in the same chapter Mm -hmm. because I think if it were just they go into the forest, they get abducted by spiders, they get rescued by the car, no other introduction of the car, it would feel a little bit undeserved Mm -hmm. Um, or it might feel like a little bit deus ex machina, like why is this thing coming to save them at this exact time? Mm -hmm. It's Um, still kind of like that. It's still kind of cool, but but you know. When you have the introduction of the car a little bit earlier, it's like, okay, like we we just saw the car. So it's fresh in your mind. And then when the car comes back, right. it's like, oh, of course. Like and the we've car seen the car there. move on its own. Like all this stuff that we, yeah, we haven't it, established. It clearly has a personality. It clearly likes them. Yeah. Um, the forest has made it wild. And actually, this is something that I, I'm not quite sure if we touched on it in the chapter of The Whomping Willow. Um, but... Like, Hogwarts's protective enchantments around it prevent electrical things from working mm-hmm. nearby, which, like, is why the car crashed originally. Mm-hmm. Um, but that probably also made its, like, electricity go haywire. And the interaction of the electricity and the magic enchantment that Arthur huh. Weasley had put in the car, like, the cohesion of those two things interacting at the same time at Hogwarts's barrier with, like, all of the you know, protective enchantment coming in right at the same time is probably what made it just, like, go completely berserk. Yeah. And, like, I'm going to go off into the woods and be a hermit. 
Yeah. But it clearly has a personality. And like this is this is a really interesting moment in the book because it's like this was just a flying car. Right. With like a couple magical things, like an invisibility booster, and yeah, it can fly. Cool. But you needed someone to control it and Right. You needed to drive it, you needed to press the buttons. So it was magic, but it was it didn't work on its own. Right. Now it's this like kind of pseudo creature. It's Mm -hmm. it's like kind of alive in a weird way. It has a personality. It like thinks for itself. So maybe Um, other magical objects could you know, become like this. Yeah, yeah. So it really makes you think like, you know, there's probably a lot of really interesting scientific experimentation we could do with like magical electronics or like, you know, um, enchanted muggle artifacts, um, which sad that enchant- enchanting muggle artifacts is illegal in the society. But well, Arthur would be so excited by this oh, yeah. knowledge. Arthur would is. lead the charge on that scientific endeavor. Um, do we ever see the car again? We never see the car again. Okay. Mm-hmm. That is interesting, too, because, you know, it just kind of had this moment to do what it needs to do. And then I guess we can picture it just romping around living the in the forest, <laughs> but it never comes back even in all their other times in the forest. Right. So. And we, we presume that it doesn't need uh, diesel fuel or anything to keep going. It just keeps <laughs> no, on going. It just keeps going. So probably yeah. still going. Okay. So again, I know we talked about this briefly in the last chapter when we actually witnessed Dumbledore and Hagrid and everyone leaving Hogwarts, but... Rowling has purposely removed everyone they trust from the story, including Hermione, who's been attacked. Um, when you say they, you mean I Harry mean Harry and Ron, and Ron right. Yeah. So, you know, Hermione is again, you know, out of it for reasons we have continued, have debated and can continue <laughs> to debate why. Um, they're forced to confront everything, just the two of them. You know, Dumbledore's not there, Hagrid's not there. All the people mm-hmm. they would go to, I guess McGonagall's there, but they don't really trust her yet because she hasn't really done a lot for them. Um and everyone's under stress. All the other teachers and are under extreme stress and, you know, not going to believe them. And everyone's just trying to hold the school together at this right. point. No one wants to do anything silly or dangerous. So again, like, how do we just, I guess, how do we feel about this in terms of in the story? And then also that Rowling has created this thing where it's really, literally the two of them are the only people that can save everyone. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. Um, I think it's very similar to the construction of the Philosopher's Stone ending, because same type of thing, like Dumbledore leaves, and then mm-hmm. they go to McGonagall with the information, but uh, she doesn't believe them, mm-hmm. and then Snape overhears what they're doing and is like, you know, being creepy about it, and so they think like, oh, like it has, it's happening tonight, we have to act now, it's right. just us, we can't go to anybody yeah. else. Same kind of thing here, except now we have no Hermione either. Um, and I guess it kind of paid off for them in the last book. So they're like, well, I guess we'll do this again somehow. But they don't want to. They no. they have no interest in, in doing anything like that because they, like, the stakes aren't high enough yet. Right. Everybody that's been petrified can still be saved. And they, to their knowledge, are going up against a monster so terrifying that even other monsters are afraid to talk about it. Right. So they're not interested in fighting this thing no. at all. It's only when the stakes are raised to the ultimate when Ginny is taken into the chamber. Mm-hmm. Then Harry and Ron decide we have to act. But before right. that point, they're totally happy to just like hope that everything turns out okay. Yeah. Just exactly. like everybody else does. Yeah, they're just going to hope everything's okay, but still somehow they they seem to already know that at least that nobody else is there that can help them. And if anything's going to change, it's probably going to be 
either the person doing it will stop or they're going to have to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And at least they have this lead now that they, they have sort of put together from scraps of information from Aragog and other sources that maybe Moaning Myrtle is the girl that was killed. So at least they have something to go on. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and Aragog. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially the dreamlike quality of the writing of this chapter, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at www.theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we descend into Chapter 16, The Chamber of Secrets. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox.